Chapter Eleven of Quicksand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Quicksand by Nella Larson. Chapter Eleven. It was night. The dinner party was over, but no one wanted to go home. Half past eleven was, it seemed, much too early to tumble into bed on a Saturday night. It was a sulky, humid night, a thick, furry night through which the electric torches shone like silver fuzz. An atrocious night for cabareting, Helga insisted, but the others wanted to go, so she went with them, though half unwillingly. After much consultation and chatter, they decided upon a place and climbed into two patiently waiting taxis, rattling things which jerked, wriggled, and groaned, and threatened every minute to collide with others of their kind, or with inattentive pedestrians. Soon they pulled up before a tawdry doorway in a narrow cross-town street and stepped out. The night was far from quiet, the streets far from empty. Clanging trolley-bells, quarrelling cats, cackling phonographs, raucous laughter, complaining motor-horns, low singing, mingled in the familiar medley that is Harlem. Black figures, white figures, little forms, big forms, small groups, large groups, sauntered or hurried by. It was gay, grotesque, and a little weird. Helga Crane felt singularly apart from it all. Entering the waiting doorway, they descended through a furtive narrow passage into a vast subterranean room. Helga smiled, thinking that this was one of those places characterized by the righteous as a hell. A glare of light struck her eyes, a blare of jazz split her ears. For a moment everything seemed to be spinning round. Even she felt that she was circling aimlessly, as she followed with the others the black giant who led them to a small table, where, when they were seated, their knees and elbows touched. Helga wondered that the waiter, indefinitely carved out of ebony, did not smile as he wrote their order. Four bottles of white rock, four bottles of ginger ale. Bah! Anne giggled, the others smiled and openly exchanged knowing glances, and under the tables flat glass bottles were extracted from the women's evening scarfs, and small silver flasks drawn from the men's hip pockets. In a little moment she grew accustomed to the smoke and din. They danced, ambling lazily to a crooning melody, or violently twisting their bodies like whirling leaves to a sudden streaming rhythm or shaking themselves ecstatically to a thumping of unseen tom-toms. For the while Helga was oblivious of the reek of flesh, smoke, and alcohol, oblivious of the oblivion of other gyrating pairs, oblivious of the color, the noise, and the grand distorted childishness of it all. She was drugged, lifted, sustained by the extraordinary music, blown out, ripped out, beaten out by the joyous, wild, murky orchestra. The essence of life seemed bodily motion. And when suddenly the music died, she dragged herself back to the present with a conscious effort, and a shameful certainty that not only had she been in the jungle, but that she had enjoyed it, began to taunt her. She hardened her determination to get away. She wasn't, she told herself, a jungle creature. She cloaked herself in a faint disgust as she watched the entertainers throw themselves about to the bursts of a syncopated jangle and when the time came again for the patrons to dance, she declined. Her rejected partner excused himself and sought an acquaintance a few tables removed. Helga sat looking curiously about her as the buzz of conversation ceased, strangled by the savage strains of music, 
and the crowd became a swirling mass. For the hundredth time she marvelled at the gradations within this oppressed race of hers. A dozen shades slid by. There was sooty black, shiny black, taupe, mahogany, bronze, copper, gold, orange, yellow, peach, ivory, pinky-white, pastry-white. There was yellow hair, brown hair, black hair, straight hair, straightened hair, curly hair, crinkly hair, woolly hair. She saw black eyes and white faces, brown eyes and yellow faces, grey eyes and brown faces, blue eyes and tan faces. Africa, Europe, perhaps with a pinch of Asia, in a fantastic motley of ugliness and beauty, semi-barbaric, sophisticated, exotic, were here. But she was blind to its charm, purposely aloof and a little contemptuous, and soon her interest in the moving mosaic waned. She had discovered Dr. Anderson sitting at a table on the far side of the room, with a girl in a shivering apricot frock. Seriously he returned her tiny bow. She met his eyes, gravely smiling, then blushed furiously and averted her own. But they went back immediately to the girl beside him, who sat indifferently sipping a colourless liquid from a high glass, or puffing a precariously hanging cigarette. Across dozens of tables, littered with corks, with ashes, with shriveled sandwiches, through slits in the swaying mob, Helga Crane studied her. She was pale, with a peculiar, almost death-like pallor. The brilliantly red, softly curving mouth was somehow sorrowful. Her pitch-black eyes, a little aslant, were veiled by long, drooping lashes and surmounted by broad brows, which seemed like black smears. The short, dark hair was brushed severely back from the wide forehead. The extreme décolleté of her simple apricot dress showed a skin of unusual colour, a delicate, creamy hue, with golden tones. Almost like an alabaster, thought Helga. Bang! Again the music died. The moving mass broke, separated. The others returned. Anne had rage in her eyes. Her voice trembled as she took Helga aside to whisper, "'There's your Dr. Anderson over there, with Audrey Denny.' "'Yes, I saw him. She's lovely. Who is she?' "'She's Audrey Denny, as I said, and she lives downtown, West Twenty-Second Street. Hasn't much use for Harlem any more. It's a wonder she hasn't some white man hanging about, the disgusting creature. I wonder how she inveigled Anderson. But that's Audrey. If there is any desirable man about, trust her to attach him. She ought to be ostracized.' "'Why?' asked Helga curiously, noting at the same time that three of the men in their own party had deserted and were now congregated about the offending Miss Denny. "'Because she goes about with white people,' came Anne's indignant answer, "'and they know she's coloured. "'I'm afraid I don't quite see, Anne. Would it be all right if they didn't know she was coloured? "'Now don't be nasty, Helga. You know very well what I mean.' Anne's voice was shaking. Helga didn't see, and she was greatly interested, but she decided to let it go. She didn't want to quarrel with Anne, not now when she had that guilty feeling about leaving her. But Anne was off on her favourite subject, race. And it seemed, too, that Audrey Denny was to her particularly obnoxious. Why, she gives parties for white and coloured people together, and she goes to white people's parties. It's worse than disgusting, it's positively obscene. Oh, come, Anne, you haven't been to any of the parties. I know. 
So how can you be so positive about the matter? No, but I've heard about them. I know people who've been. Friends of yours, Anne? Anne admitted that they were, some of them. Well, then, they can't be so bad. I mean, if your friends sometimes go, can they? Just what goes on that's so terrible? Why, they drink, for one thing. Quantities, they say. So do we at the parties here in Harlem," Helga responded. An idiotic impulse seized her to leave the place, Anne's presence, then, forever. But of course she couldn't. It would be foolish, and so ugly. And the white men dance with the colored women. Now you know, Helga Crane, that can mean only one thing. Anne's voice was trembling with cold hatred. As she ended she made a little clicking noise with her tongue indicating an abhorrence too great for words. Don't the colored men dance with the white women, or do they sit about impolitely while the other men dance with their women?" inquired Helga very softly, and with a slowness approaching almost to insolence. Anne's insinuations were too revolting. She had a slightly sickish feeling, and a flash of anger touched her. She mastered it and ignored Anne's inadequate answer. "'It's the principle of the thing that I object to. You can't get round the fact that her behavior is outrageous, treacherous, in fact. That's what's the matter with the negro race. They won't stick together. She certainly ought to be ostracized. I've nothing but contempt for her, as has every other self-respecting negro. The other women and the lone man left to them, Helga's own escort, all seemingly agreed with Anne. At any rate, they didn't protest. Helga gave it up. She felt that it would be useless to tell them that what she felt for the beautiful, calm, cool girl who had the assurance, the courage, so placidly to ignore racial barriers and give her attention to people, was not contempt, but envious admiration. So she remained silent, watching the girl. At the next first sound of music Dr. Anderson rose. Languidly the girl followed his movement, a faint smile parting her sorrowful lips at some remark he made. Her long, slender body swayed with an eager, pulsing motion. She danced with grace and abandon, gravely, yet with obvious pleasure, her legs, her hips, her back, all swaying gently, swung by that wild music from the heart of the jungle. Helga turned her glance to Dr. Anderson. Her disinterested curiosity passed. While she still felt for the girl envious admiration, that feeling was now augmented by another a more primitive emotion. She forgot the garish, crowded room. She forgot her friends. She saw only two figures, closely clinging. She felt her heart throbbing. She felt the room receding. She went out the door. She climbed endless stairs. At last, panting, confused, but thankful to have escaped, she found herself again out in the dark night alone, a small, crumpled thing in a fragile, flying black-and-gold dress. A taxi drifted toward her, stopped. She stepped into it, feeling cold, unhappy, misunderstood, and forlorn. End of chapter 11